This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. <laughs> Breath Control Ho Chi Minh Richard Nixon back again Moonshot Woodstock Watergate Punk Rock Begin. Reagan Good morning America Tear down this wall Mr. Fordyce <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 105 of We Didn't Start the Fire The podcast that's a number one song and a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world Our guru is Billy Joel Our mission is to feed our heads And our pledge is that together we will learn without ever feeling like we're really learning I'm Tom Fordyce I'm Katie Puckrick Katie, are you ready to toast our lobes around the fire once again? I sure am because today we have a pretty chunky topic It's Ronald Reagan Radio personality <laughs> Actor Home appliance spokesman, <laughs> conservative Republican, two-term governor of California, and two-term president of the United States. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Memories of Reagan, Katie, growing up in the States. The shock horror pearl clutching that went on amongst uh, the peoples of the great country and also the media about the fact that an actor dared to run for the highest office in the land. Like People just couldn't get their heads around it. It just seemed so cynical and cartoonish when, of course, that's probably the best training a person could possibly have for the, for the office in a certain respect. What about you? I think I was six years old when he won that presidential election in 1980. And he was such a huge figure that even to a six-year-old growing up in the Hertfordshire Essex borders, it made an impact. I think partly, Katie, because it was seen as being of a piece with Margaret Thatcher's rise to power. Yeah. And I grew up in a household that wasn't necessarily a fan of either. But also because he was such a huge cultural figure when you were a kid growing up in the UK. Partly because of the politics, but partly because it seeped into all areas of your life. So when you were a kid who was obsessed with music, as you know I was, and you were watching Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the video for Two Tribes, the video for Two Tribes is Ronald Reagan or a Reagan-esque figure yeah. having a fight with a sort of Brezhnev-esque figure. Then you might wait a couple of years and you're watching the next episode of Top of the Pops and Genesis are on with Land of Confusion and the Land of Confusion video uses the spitting image puppet of Ronald Reagan having nightmares about some sort of nuclear holocaust. So even if you were had no interest in American politics, he was inescapable. Well, yeah, and also don't forget Heaven we don't need no fascist groove thing. Yeah. Reagan's president-elect. And then Simply Red. Yeah. With money's too tight to mention. Yeah. Singing about Reaganomics. Yeah. Does the earth move for you, Nancy? Uh, he, he's, he was kind of an early meme before memes were a thing. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty of this. Today's expert is Ewan Morgan. He is the Emeritus Professor of United States History at the Institute of the Americas, University College London. And he is also, quite conveniently for our purposes today, the author of Reagan, American Icon. Welcome, Ewan. Thanks very much. Pleased to be here. So pleased to have you. So there's a lot that captures my imagination about Ron Reagan. One thing that is uh, just kind of a stumbling block to me is the fact that he was Mr. Show Business, and then he turned into quite an effective and impactful president. Ewan, before we dig into the nitty gritty of what made Ronald Reagan so Ronald Reagan-ish, let's get a sense of how his presidency was perceived? Like, what were the big touchstones of him as a president? 
Well, he's elected president in 1980, and uh, it's a very significant moment in American history because there's been what you might call a liberal ascendancy up until then. Reagan initiates what could be called a conservative ascendancy, big tax cuts for everybody, reduction of government. Government is portrayed as a problem rather than an asset. And very significantly, it seemed the presidency at a time when the United States appears to be on the back foot in the Cold War. He sets out to win the Cold War rather than just manage it in the manner of previous presidents. And he initiates the largest defense buildup in American history, takes a very, very aggressive view towards the Soviet Union. And his belief is that the Soviet Union just cannot keep up with the United States when the United States decides to have this arms buildup. And broadly, he's right in that because by 1989, the Soviets have recognized that they need to reform their system internally. They can't afford the Cold War. And Ronald Reagan lays the foundation of Cold War victory. There's so many strange things about Reagan, Katie. And I wonder because he entered my world at a point where he was the president. But when you look back at his early life, Ewan, there are so many points where this man does not look anything like a future president. That is true. It isn't until the mid-1950s that Reagan's political career begins to take off. Uh, He's a radio star in the mid-1930s, moves to Hollywood, has a reasonably good Hollywood career, but without becoming a major star. Round about the mid-1950s, he looks to be washed up. But salvation is at hand. He becomes a corporate spokesman for General Electric and learns that he can give political speeches with the best of them. Isn't that interesting that he didn't set out to be a political leader, and yet he does find himself as the union leader for he's the president of the Screen Actors Guild. So I guess that's an early taste of uh, running a shop. Absolutely. Uh, He is the only American president to have been a trade union leader. Uh, (laughs) uh, He's also the only American president to have broken a strike, the Patco strike of uh, 1981. Uh, So a complex man, but uh, he was a very effective negotiator uh, across the table from the studio heads. And he often said, whether jokingly or not, uh, dealing with the Russians at the various summits of the 1980s was child's play compared to dealing with the studio heads in trying to get a better deal for the screen actors. And one thing that caught my imagination was the fact that Ronald Reagan's mother was a religious leader and a healer, kind of a snake oil salesman, like a, a Amy Semple McPherson sort of character. And I'm wondering if that gave him an idea of like kind of at the heart of being a political leader, give people what they want, tell them what they want to hear. Yes, his parents are very important uh, influences on his life. His father negatively. His father is an alcoholic uh, who never really makes it. He's a failed shoe salesman, but he's a great storyteller. And Reagan gets his, I think, his gift of the gab from his father. Mm. But the really important person in his life is his mother. I wouldn't call her a snake oil salesman. I think that uh, she's really a very fervent believer in a church called the Disciples of Christ who take a very optimistic view of life and believe that America is God's chosen nation. And uh, Reagan inculcates these values from her. You know, he's a child of the small town early 20th century Midwest and religion is very important. Not so much established religion, but religious values. And Reagan never loses that. And if you ask people who know him what his greatest quality is, most people don't say his conservatism. Most people say his optimism, which is inculcated in him by his mother and by his early religious teachings. The alcoholic father interests me because when I think of Reagan or maybe the stereotypes about Reagan as a president, there seem to be you in a lot of contradictions with his experiences in his own life, certainly at the start. So if as a president he was about cutting welfare, he comes from pretty much a single parent background with an absentee father for a lot of the time. Also, he is associated with the moral majority as a president and family values. Yet he gets divorced 
Yes, it's interesting. Uh, Ameri- uh, Reagan is the first American president to have been divorced. Uh, he is divorced by his wife, Jane Wyman, in the late 1940s uh, because she is frankly bored by him. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, one of the best reasons for getting All divorced, he huh? can do is speak politics uh, day and night and okay. uh, she gets fed up with it. And uh, he is devastated because he doesn't want to be divorced. But then he meets Nancy Davis, Nancy Reagan, and Nancy Davis makes it her job to make Ronald Reagan successful. She pushed him and she knew his limitations and his strengths. But Ronald Reagan, uh, even as president, uh, kept his distance from the moral majority. Uh, yes, he was prepared to use them, but he he wasn't like a president who wore his uh, religion on his sleeve. Uh, that said, um, Governor of California, he signed an abortion bill. As President of the United States, he supports, and successfully, a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion because he needs the moral majority support. He's doing so for political calculation. I am very interested in his relationship with Nancy. Can you talk a little bit more about the dynamic? Because I remember her being so mocked for her moon pie eye, fixed stare, adoring consideration of his face as he spoke. And I was just wondering... Was this for real or was this kind of uh, glorified acting? Well, Nancy writes in her autobiography that uh, she and uh, Ronnie, as she called him, had a very special relationship. Uh, I don't think it was an entirely healthy relationship, frankly. They were so obsessed with each other that they didn't really have time for their own children. Really? He had two children with Nancy, and they both said in their various memoirs that they felt they were intruding on them. That, oh, uh, that they uh, they were so into each other that uh, they they really didn't have the emotional space to include them as fully as they wanted. Well, it sounds like it was a very successful project, Nancy and Ronnie's marriage, and therefore the the presidency, because like you say, that was the fertilizer that kind of enabled him to bloom in whatever ways he did. I wanted to kind of scroll back to the era of him being the union leader at uh, Screen Actors Guild because that was a time where he ended up cooperating with the FBI's communist witch hunt. He dropped a dime on actors that he, he thought were in the Communist Party. That can't have made him very popular in Hollywood. Well, a lot of this was going on. Um, there was a uh, Hollywood red scare. And initially, Ronald Reagan wants to stop the Hollywood investigations as president of the Screen Actors Guild. He testifies before the House and American Activities Committee in 1947 and says, look, we can clean house. The communists are not that powerful in Hollywood. But he soon finds out that uh, the studios want to crack down in a big way on those suspected of communism. His own board for the Screen Actors Guild says, you've got to get on board with the, the studios, otherwise we're all in trouble. And this, of course, is at a time when television is beginning to take audiences away from the movies and Hollywood has got to prove itself squeaky clean. So Ronald Reagan, he names names. Uh, most of the names he names are known to the FBI already. I don't think uh, he actually uh, unveils anybody who isn't known to be a communist. But for all Reagan's early claims that you know everybody should have the right to their own political beliefs, he does become a fervent anti-communist in this period. Mm. And with the coming of the Korean War in 1950, he becomes convinced that the Democratic administration of Harry Truman is too soft on communism abroad, too soft on communism at home, and that a tough stand needs to be taken by the Republican Party as the only reliable anti-communist party in America. And this marks his transition from being a Democrat to a Republican. And he was really bummed out that he didn't get to fight in World War II. Is that right? Reagan 
Ryan had a terrible uh, eyesight problem. Uh, it was discovered that he couldn't have identified a Japanese tank at 20 feet, which uh, <laughs> would have put him and numerous other people in danger. <laughs> so Ronald Reagan spent his war in Burbank. He does public information films about the war effort. He made like 400 of them. That's right. And yeah. he, he, he does films to help uh, pilots identify Japanese planes, Japanese zeros. And very importantly, he participates in bond drives. And bond drives are very important to help fund the American war effort. Right. But he is ashamed, I think, of not having seen service in the way that James Stewart, his big friend, did. Yeah, there's Jimmy Stewart, actually, mm. a, a war hero yeah. flying planes. Henry Fonda. Mm. He t- talks several times uh, about the Hollywood Red Scare, and he says, uh, I went hand-to-hand uh, combat with the Hollywood Reds. You know, okay. this is, is uh, <laughs> And while he's in London uh, filming The Hasty Heart, uh, he meets his co-star Richard Todd, a genuine war hero who fought in D-Day as a paratrooper. And uh, Richard Todd later commented, uh, he always looked up to me. I sensed that uh, he was um, somewhat ashamed of the fact that he'd never seen combat. When he's doing these these propaganda films, is his delivery the same as it is later in life? Because that's one of the things that... I'll never forget about Reagan. He had that curious mixture of he was quite avuncular, he was quite grandfatherly by that stage. And folksy. Folksy, little twinkle in the eye, always very smiley, often stumbling over things as well. He wasn't a perfect speaker. Yes, well, these uh, propaganda films had to be done uh, very precisely, so they were heavily edited. But uh, he is beginning now to realise the importance of political communication, I think. Uh, You know, as a Hollywood actor, he's he's in the B-movies, and as he says in his memoirs, uh, they don't want the B-movies good, they want them Thursday. And, uh, you know, there's there's no acting involved in it. Uh, He makes a transition to A-movies. It's amazing. Very few people did this. And then the war happened and he's at the peak of his brief stardom. Uh, He has to go off to war, well, off to Burbank. Uh, (laughs) When he comes back, this Warner Brothers studio thinks, oh, this is going to be great. He's, you know, he's going to be hot. But they can't find it for him because he's no longer the kind of youthful uh, star in his late 20s he was before the war and they can't can't find the position for him he always wants to be a cowboy star western star but if you see Reagan he's a great horseman but He's so myopic that even in some of the movies, you can see him squinting. You know, <laughs> he, he wouldn't be much good in a gunfight. You're right. <laughs> you, you, he sort of has that look like he's struggling to read the, the menu at yeah. the chippy. <laughs> <laughs> this is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do you remember, Tom, when we were doing the James Dean episode and we talked about Reagan's uh, General Electric Theater and that episode yeah. with, with James Dean where James Dean plays a thug who breaks into about this, yeah. Ron, the doctor's house. And you do have such a stark contrast between the past of acting and the future of acting, whereas in the right environment and the context, Ronald Reagan would have been absolutely serviceable as a middle-class bougie man. Here, he just seems like he's a, a rank amateur next to the oozing emotion of James Dean. I wanted to get into, actually, the the whole General Electric Theater uh, gig that he had, because as you said, that kind of saved his bacon once the acting job started to dry up. Can you describe what, what that role was? Yes, um, it was uh, fixed for him by his uh, Hollywood agent, uh, a guy called Lou Wasserman, who really was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood behind the scenes. He ran the Music Corporation of America. He owed Reagan for several favours Reagan had done him while Reagan was in the Screen Actors Guild. And the quid pro quo was when Reagan's career was on skids. He was appearing in a review in Las Vegas before Las Vegas was a big deal, right. you know. And uh, uh, Wasserman gets him this gig with uh, General Electric, and it involves him fronting a uh, weekly drama. Part of the deal is to become this corporate spokesman visiting the far-flung GE empire, 139 factories. Yeah. You get to meet the workers. And this is where he finds he has this empathy. As he put it, he came from Dixon, Illinois, and he said, I rediscovered my roots. I suddenly discovered what small town America was, and it was a place that I'd forgotten when I was in Hollywood, but I reconnected with it. Amazing. So as a corporate shell, he reconnects with his roots. So uh, he hits uh, a little bit of a hurdle there because there's a civil antitrust case that implicates him as a co-conspirator while he is working for General Electric. Can you talk to us about how this puts him in the sights of the Attorney General Robert Kennedy? Wasserman was uh, in charge of the MCA, an agency uh, representing the stars, but moved into production. Now, you can't be on both sides of the fence. Either you're representing the actors or you're representing the producers. Well, Ronald Reagan fixed it so that MCA had this deal that they could sit on both sides of the fence. And that became crucial to the rise of MCA. They bought Universal Studios. They bought Decca Records. They became the octopus, as it was known in Hollywood. And the Justice Department, headed, as you say, by the president's brother, Robert Kennedy, subpoenaed Reagan uh, very embarrassingly when he was on the set. He hated the Kennedys thereafter. He loathed them. Uh, the uh, suit is dropped because MCA says, OK, we won't do representation any longer. It wasn't making comparable money. It was making it production. But something had gone wrong and Reagan's defense was, I can't remember. 
I can't remember doing this at all. Hey, I'm sure when this deal went through, I was in Montana filming Cattle Queen of Montana. It's a line that he plays again in Iran-Contra. I didn't do anything. No, I can't remember. I can't remember at all. And of course, conveniently, Alzheimer's started to rear its head towards the end of his life. So then people were wondering whether that had any play. But but certainly in this earlier stage, he was conveniently drawing a veil of amnesia over the situation. But it's interesting. Uh, Kennedy is assassinated on a Friday in November 1963. And the Reagans have uh, arranged a party at their Hollywood home uh, for the Sunday. Uh, one of the guests phones up and says, oh, the party's not on, is it? Uh, and Nancy is on the phone and she said, well, of course it is. Of course it is. You know, there, <laughs> Why is it? wouldn't it be? <laughs> on this. Uh, you know, so a national morning and yes. uh, uh, the guy walks in and he finds the cast of Hollywood conservatives, John Wayne there, Buddy Ebsen and so on. Oh. And uh, Reagan had a blind spot about the Kennedys uh, because he always felt that uh, they attempted to undermine him, sully his reputation. Well, he was doing something wrong, so, you mm. know, he mm. would have done the same thing, I would imagine, yeah, if he were and there. Yeah, he also called uh, John F. Kennedy uh, uh, Karl Marx uh, in a tousled haircut. Strong, I'd say. Um, <laughs> how does he make the jump from that position, then, Ewan, to becoming governor of California? Firstly, I ought to say that uh, Reagan remains a registered Democrat until 1962. He wants to register the Republican in 1960, but Richard Nixon says to him, you're much more useful to me as a Democrat. Oh, Uh, so Nixonian that is. He's really plotting his way. Uh, So stay as a Democrat and give speeches for me as to why the people can no longer trust the Democratic Party. So... uh, uh, Reagan does that, but in 1962, Clever. he uh, converts, shall we say. And in 1964, the Republicans decide they're no longer going to run Me Too candidates who try to ape the liberalism of the Democratic Party, that they're going to go for broke and have a really conservative candidate in the person of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. He's a disastrous candidate, frightens people that he's going to (laughs) launch nuclear strikes against the Soviet Union, that he's going to abolish social security in a desperate effort to salvage the campaign or at least prevent total wipeout, a group of businessmen persuade Goldwater to let Reagan make a speech. And it's called A Time for Choosing. And Ronald Reagan lays out the Goldwater message in fundamentally non-threatening, appealing terms in the way the candidate himself never could. So these businessmen say, hey, we've got somebody here. Next stop, governorship of California. Let's run him against Pat Brown, arch-liberal. The only chance we've got of beating this two-term guy is to run somebody against him who's more appealing. And Reagan runs, Reagan wins the Republican nomination. And this is a recurring feature of his electoral career. The Democrats do not take him seriously. An actor? Yeah. Pat Brown said, they're running an actor against me. And, uh, you know, he could oh, never Pat. believe uh, <laughs> that Reagan could win. Uh, and uh, at one point, they really went dirty. Uh, a campaign film said, uh, Ronald Reagan's an actor. Do you know who shot Lincoln? He oh. was an actor, too. You know? and, <laughs> it's a little spurious, but yeah. okay. Jack Palance, who was a Democratic activist and Hollywood star, was so disgusted with the attack on Reagan's uh, acting profession and the acting profession in general, he just walked out of a studio during a telethon at one point. But Ronald Reagan trounces Pat Brown. He becomes governor of California, and then he discovers that governing is more than about giving speeches. And Ronald Reagan makes rubbish of his ideology. He promotes the biggest tax increase in California history in order to balance the budget. 
He signs a gun control law, largely because Black Panthers invade the uh, State Assembly armed to protest about uh, police harassment. I find that so fascinating because it's when black people are armed is suddenly when white people are thinking, you know what, let's talk about gun safety. Mm. And of course, he signs uh, an abortion law. And by the way, he has a very fine environmental record. Quite democratic values, those things that he is uh, advocating. Yeah, he talked a great conservative game, Mm. but behind the scenes, he played politics. And he's got to govern with an assembly which is dominated by Democrats. So he has two terms as governor of of California. His second term comes around with a landslide. Is that the point where... Reagan at least is thinking, this is now a stepping stone. I'm not stopping here. Yes, I think so. Um, He was aware of the possibilities. Uh, Look, Ronald Reagan becomes governor of California just shortly after California replaces New York as the most populous state in the Union. That happened in 1963. So this is big time. If he can win California, he thinks, you know, I'm ready for the big time. He uh, decides that uh, Gerald Ford, who has replaced Richard Nixon when Richard Nixon resigns over Watergate, Gerald Ford is not true to the conservative credo, that he's just another Me Too Republican who cannot be relied on to uh, deliver the conservative agenda. So he does something that uh, uh, is very rarely done. He runs against the incumbent president for the nomination or the presidential nomination of the party. He comes within an ace of it in 1976. He finds that he has a new constituency stretching across southeast, southwest of the United States, what people come to call the Sun Belt. You know, this is a new population growth area, economic growth area of the United States. And Ronald Reagan speaks for Sun Belt values, less government, less taxes, less regulation, and let's take it on with the communists. And that message nearly helped him unseat General Ford, In 1980, America is ready for him. So he wins 51% of the popular vote in the 1980 election. Carter only gets 41%. But within a couple of months of being inaugurated, we almost come to his first crisis, the assassination attempt. Mm. And the thing I wonder about this, and again, thinking about the parallels with Margaret Thatcher and what happened to Thatcher's popularity after the IRA bomb in Brighton, Because Reagan survives the assassination and and seems to make pretty much a miraculous recovery when he's at death's door when he goes to hospital, this seems to play beautifully to his support. Yes, there's no doubt that um, the assassination attempt came as a great shock to Americans. Uh, He is very, very close to dying. Uh, It takes him a long time to come back from that, although his public communication team hide from the public just how serious it all is. But there's no doubt that Americans feel that their president has uh, performed heroically in the face of uh, uh, near tragedy. And there's a wave of sympathy just at the time going through Congress are two major bills, the Tax Cut Bill of 1981 and the Spending Cuts Bill of 1981. That sways enough Democrats, predominantly, I have to say, Southern Democrats, who realize that Reagan's influence in their region is something they have got to come to terms with, and they cross the floor. It feels like the start in both Britain and the US of this great economic experiment which has been talked about in academic circles this idea of liberalism the Milton Friedman School of Economics and initially it has pretty catastrophic results Reagan is a believer in supply-side economics. Well, how about this for snake oil, okay? (laughs) Uh, Supply-side economics says you can cut taxes and you will actually deliver balanced budgets at the lower rate of taxation. Hey, what's not to like? Of course, it's shall we say, not quite up to the standards of truth that he would want. And uh, most supply-side economists, professional economists, weren't saying that. But Ronald Reagan was simplifying the message. Cut taxes and it'll all be rosy. Well, of course, it isn't rosy. But by 1984... 
Margaret Thatcher is the beneficiary of the Falklands War. Ronald Reagan is the beneficiary of the invasion of Grenada. Uh, to overthrow a Marxist regime, America's back, standing tall in the world. But Grenada is a tiny place. I, I remember watching Never this. mind about that. It's like it's the, it's the worst fight rules. ever, Katie. <laughs> That's, I remember watching this on the TV news at the time, and I probably would have been 11, probably 10 or 11 by this point. And even as a kid, I was aware that this was one of the... Punching down, shall we say. <laughs> most ridiculous invasions of all time. You've got the biggest power in global politics yeah. against a tiny Caribbean island. How long does it take? Two days? Well, it took five days, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> look, uh, the way it was sold at the time, OK, look, we've just had the Iranian hostage crisis and there are 800 American medical students on this island on a study abroad course. This Marxist group that had overthrown the left-wing government of uh, Grenada, they're not going to be safe with these guys. And the Cubans are there building an airport that is large enough to take military aircraft and that will be somewhere from which the Soviets can threaten us. So we're going in. You're absolutely right. Uh, David and Goliath doesn't come into it. Uh, (laughs) But if you think about the humiliation of the Iranian hostage crisis, failure in Vietnam, and suddenly Ronald Reagan has brought about this military success Amazingly, at this very moment of success, the United States has suffered one of the greatest military catastrophes in its recent history. For very, very good humanitarian reasons, Reagan has sent uh, U.S. Marines to become part of a peacekeeping force with the U.S., France, a couple of other countries uh, into the Lebanon. The peacekeepers, the American peacekeepers, become sucked into the Lebanese civil war and they're no longer seen as neutral by the uh, Iranian-backed side in that conflict. And that leads to the very moment that the Grenada invasion is launched, a bomb attack is made on the American barracks in Lebanon, the Marine barracks. It kills something like 280 Marines. It's the worst day for Marine casualties since Iwo Jima. But it is overshadowed by success. Mm. What Ronald Reagan does do, however, he goes to uh, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, where the caskets are coming back, honours them through his presence. He doesn't sort of pretend it hasn't happened. Right. So he uh, is suggesting that the buck does stop with him. So he is showing up at the right time and being the commander in chief. Another area that is notable in his presidency is unfortunately a point where he didn't show up. The beginning of AIDS, where he ignored it and then downplayed it. Let's get into that. What what was the idea there? Was he just absolutely misinformed that it was something like, oh, it's it's the flu, it'll go away? Or Or was he just horrified at the implications and thought it was too much to get into and he, he personally couldn't deal with it? I think it's a combination of factors. There isn't a recognition of the gravity of the epidemic. I think that's absolutely true. Reagan does bow to the expert advice from the uh, Department of Health that uh, the United States is facing an epidemic, but he doesn't do enough. The critical moment comes with the publication of the so-called COOP report. Now, Everett COOP is the U.S. Surgeon General. Coop says the only way we're going to control AIDS is if we acknowledge its existence and we have an education campaign. And that means educating young people about the use of condoms, educating people about the dangers of uh, unprotected sex of any kind, and that we have to treat the sufferers of AIDS with compassion, not force them to register. You know, we have to treat them as people who have a disease that isn't their own fault. Um, And there were moral majority people, Christian white people in the administration, and many of them were located in the Department of Education. Some of these guys said, are you seriously suggesting that the president of the United States should go on television 
and urge the use of condoms for premarital sex. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't he go on and say, don't have premarital sex? <laughs> you know, hold back the waters. That uh, works. Uh, yeah, but and if you think about in Britain, whatever negative feelings you have about Margaret Thatcher, once she decided AIDS was a threat, don't die of ignorance campaign. You know, I remember Ian Dury coming on national television and he had a uh, little statuette with an erect penis and he mm-hmm. demonstrated how you put a condom on an erect penis, uh, which uh, I found very illuminating. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we are. But uh, I would have thought, uh, you know, for young people, this was a necessary message. It never happens in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think Reagan is culpable. He actually gets pally with an AIDS victim, 18-year-old who's contracted AIDS through having a contaminated blood. He's a haemophiliac. And Ryan White is ostracized by his schoolmates. He's discriminated against. Uh, Ronald Reagan takes pity on him, but he doesn't make it a public campaign. Mm. In fact, he doesn't even meet Ryan until he's left the presidency. You know, if you're scoring Ronald Reagan on AIDS... Four or five out of ten tops. Well, let's score him on some other big issues then, Ewan. Let's score him on civil rights. Okay. If there was one group in America who was resistant to Ronald Reagan's charms, it was African Americans. When Ronald Reagan dies in 2004, it's notable that African Americans do not share in the national mourning and celebration. And uh, I, I, I forced myself to listen to rap music. It's not my bag, but uh, uh, there's an incredibly interesting song by uh, Killer Mike came out in 2011 called Ronald Reagan. And it ends with the words, I'll end with these four words, I'm glad Reagan dead. Now, why this? Firstly, it's Reagan's efforts to reduce welfare programs which primarily benefit blacks. Secondly, it's his unsuccessful efforts to protect the rights of segregated Christian right schools, which appears to threaten the desegregation uh, settlement beginning with uh, Brown versus Topeka. And third, and this I think is often forgotten, the Reagan administration intensifies the war on drugs. It's launched by Nixon as a federal initiative, but it's hugely intensified by Ronald Reagan. It now becomes a crime not simply to deal, but to indulge. And the number of primarily young males... 18 to 30, who are caught up in this war on drugs is phenomenal. Yeah, they're targeted. They're targeted, uh, almost to the point that many critics say this is a form of racial control, that this massive incarceration rate is nothing more than an attempt at social control. And rap uh, tells a story uh, of uh, Reagan and drugs. Uh, And of course, there's hypocrisy here, because it becomes known that the CIA is in its efforts to fund the Nicaraguan Contras, is allowing the Nicaraguans uh, to sell cocaine, crack cocaine, in the in the ghettos. And, yeah, uh, back to America, yeah, and yeah. because it serves their political interest, America's political interest in South America. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, in, in fact, good old Killer Mike, he covers it in the song. I'm just yeah. having a look at yeah. the lyrics now while while we're talking about this. So that's civil rights. The big win for Reagan is the Cold War. Absolutely. Um, Gorbachev couldn't have done it without Reagan, and Reagan couldn't have done it without Gorbachev. Gorbachev gets the Nobel Prize. Hell, even Henry Kissinger got the Nobel Prize in partnership with Lady October for putting an end to the uh, Vietnam War. The the war that he helped start and kept going, kept putting the logs under that fire. I think Reagan deserves recognition, okay? He's an out-and-out hawk who believes that the Soviet Union will only respond to superior power. So we move into a situation where the Cold War hots up in the early 80s. And I would say that other than the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, the most dangerous moment in the Cold War was in late 1983, when the Soviets got worried that NATO was about to launch a preemptive attack uh, 
under the guise of conducting exercise, the so-called able archer exercises. NATO had no such intention, but Reagan, via British intelligence, who had a mole uh, high up in the Soviet government, found out later what was going on, and he was horrified. And he said, why do they think they want to, we want to attack them? What have they got that we'd want? And from that point on, he begins to think, how can I... How can I get rid of nuclear weapons with the Soviet Union's cooperation and there's no chance of him doing so until you have a reformer in the Kremlin. Gorbachev is very suspicious of Reagan. They, he sees Reagan as a simplistic ideologue who is dangerous but gradually through the meetings they have. Ronald Reagan is a very face-to-face person, okay, and he has the... Uh, breakthrough meeting with uh, Gorbachev in uh, Geneva and then this fantastic summit meeting in Iceland where he and Gorbachev come within a sliver of agreeing to destroy all their nuclear weapons and the stumbling block is the strategic defense initiative better known Star Wars. Star Wars. Well, it's the building of uh, laser weapons in space that can shoot down incoming missiles. And Gorbachev knows that he can't give up all nuclear weapons without Reagan giving up Star Wars. But Reagan says, no, no deal, no deal, no deal. And was Star Wars really a thing or was it just still on the drawing board? Oh, it's never been uh, uh, (laughs) made a reality. There's a lot of money spent on it. But, 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 got to keep in mind this is a bargaining chip. Gorbachev knows that the Soviet Union the economy cannot keep up with this revolutionary new but development. But it's just a bluff. It's not even a thing hey, yet. So? Uh, <laughs> it's just a it bluff. Worked. Yeah, it worked. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's hoped to be the first stage in the ultimate ending of nuclear weaponry. It doesn't happen because Reagan runs out of time. Gorbachev is effectively overthrown in 1991. But for a moment, uh, it seemed as if uh, the world was moving into a new era. But what Reagan and Gorbachev did was that they laid the foundations for the ending of the Cold War. It was only a few episodes, Katie, that we were going deep into Watergate. Yeah. And there's something that happens in Reagan's presidency, Ewan, which could have been his Watergate, and yet he escapes, and that's the Iran-Contra affair. Yes. Uh, Well, Iran-Contra is very complex, and I won't bore people by going into the entire complexity of it, but shall we say that uh, the roots of Iran-Contra lie in Reagan's efforts to supply the Nicaraguan Contra rebels who are seeking to overthrow the Sandinista Marxist regime. Congress is fearful Support for the Contras will eventually evolve into a Vietnam-style intervention, and they're desperate to prevent this. So they pass a series of resolutions preventing the administration from supplying either side in the Nicaraguan Civil War. So Ronald Reagan gets round it in large part with the help of aides who drum up monies from... uh, private donors, uh, but that money is used to uh, buy weaponry, which is flown into Nicaragua under the auspices of uh, National Security Council aid and supported by the CIA. So it's a semi-official operation. The Iranians come into it uh, in about 1985. Uh, They are involved in a war with uh, Iraq and they are desperate to get uh, weaponry and the Israelis can't sell it to them without... American permission because they've got it from America, okay? Slowly but surely, the uh, administration is drawn into this web of lies. And what finally uh, gets it going is hostage-taking in the Lebanon, where Ronald Reagan says, okay, we'll sell you the weaponry, but the Hezbollah has taken American hostages in Lebanon. We want them freed. A couple of hostages are freed. 
and the Iranians get their weaponry, then they take some more hostages. You know, it's, <laughs> it's an ongoing process. It's, you know, you couldn't make it up when you read the transcripts. Yeah. But one of the planes that is taking weaponry into uh, Nicaragua is shot down by the Sandinista regime. The pilot connected to the CIA is supposed to have taken the poison pill tablet but he decides he wants to live and the next thing you know he's telling the world the CIA is involved everybody's involved and then the Iranians get in and they say hey we've been selling Americans uh, weaponry even though your laws say no so in late 1986 Ronald Reagan is in deep deep trouble Ronald Reagan retreats into forgetfulness. I don't know what happened. Why are they coming for me? I didn't authorize this. Well, if you go through the diary of the president and uh, it's now been published, you'll see plenty of references. I knew what was going on. The line in Watergate was, what did the president know and when did he know it? And the joke over Iran-Contra was, what did the president forget and when did he forget it? Uh, uh, but that uh, defense of decrepitude works because people... Because he's an old president. He's he, an old man. He is the oldest president ever prior to Biden. Yes. Mm. Confusingly, the man who was chosen f- to have his head lopped off was the chief of staff called Donald Reagan. <laughs> they say, now look, you've got to go on television and do a mea culpa. And this is one of the most carefully crafted speeches of the Reagan presidency. And what Reagan says, I'm almost quoting him word for word here. My heart tells me I did not sell arms for hostages and transfer the money to Nicaragua. But my head now tells me that I did. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Basically, he's really saying, hey, I did it for the right reasons. And he wasn't after power. It was done to get the hostages out of Lebanon. It was done to undermine a Cold War enemy. You know, it's not like Watergate, where Richard Nixon is trying to subvert a free election. I think Reagan was very lucky. Well, I'm wondering about Reagan's footprint on the shape of the U.S. Republican Party, because for years he was cited as the gold standard Republican politician and figurehead. But the GOP in America is now unrecognizable. Do you think if Ronald Reagan was starting out today, he'd be able to even cut it in the petty sissy slap tit for tat grievance culture that masquerades as the Republican Party? I think that Ronald Reagan where he alive today would have been greatly saddened. Okay, Ronald Reagan sees himself as president of all Americans. Okay, he's a base mobilizer when it comes to election time, but he doesn't attack his uh, opponents in the way that Trump and other Republicans have done. For him, America is a, a shining city on a hill. His optimism is at least as important as its conservatism, and I would argue more so. Now, people might say to me, well, of course, the past always looks better, and you're looking through it as an old man with rose-tinted, Trump-coloured spectacles. Uh, I have no illusions about Reagan. Um, In my book, I've tried to pinpoint his strengths, his achievements, but also his weaknesses and failures. And, you know, his record included um, quite a few... uh, He can't empathize with people who are dependent on welfare. You know, for Ronald Reagan, this is America. Anybody can make it. Well, no, not everybody can, but he doesn't understand. He doesn't get that. And a final question for you, Ewan. What Ronald Reagan film would you recommend? (laughs) Okay, my favorite Ronald Reagan film is Song of the Turtle. I think it's a nice little film uh, where Ronald Reagan uh, uh, plays a guy on leave during World War II, meets a girl in New York City, and uh, they swear fealty to each other when the war is over. But uh, you won't get me to say Ronald Reagan appeared in a great Western, regrettably. (laughs) Ewan Morgan, thank you so much. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Tom, do you think that Ronald Reagan was a uniquely American figure? Because I'm struck by how successfully he embodies all these different archetypes, like the patriotic citizen or, or the cowboy, the American cowboy is folksy, and also the fact that he's an actor. I mean, it just seems so American. Isn't that his greatest performance then? Because he can make everyone believe that he's the president for them. That's what he said to an, an old actor buddy of his, Richard Woodmark, that the presidency was, quote, the best role I ever played. Even his costume choices, Katie, are inspired. Yeah. So you think of him in his leather uh, flight jacket. Remember mm. that one? Yeah. Where it makes him, A, look younger than he is, but yeah. also makes him look like a man of action. Thatcher was very good at that as well, you know, when she's when she would appear in a tank swathed in, you know, sort of flowing almost Lawrence of Arabia garments <laughs> but his cowboy hat like if you yeah. want a simple way to the heart of America you've got a guy who was in cowboy films yeah. putting a cowboy hat and cowboy films are simple it's black and white you've got the guy in white and you've got the guy in black and that's how Reagan seemed to sell the world back to America we're the good guys they're the bad guys yeah he really embodied pop culture and I was thinking just even all of the things that happened around his presidency uh, like the assassination John Hinckley Jr. motivated by his love for Jodie Foster in her taxi driver role as a teenage prostitute I mean you weave in all of these you know oh he's motivated to kill the president about that. It's just all of these strange things that when you add them up, they're all little points on the chart of America in the 80s. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Katie. Oh, you know, uh, I did a sneaky little Google while we were chatting to Ewan because you'd mentioned at the top of the show about the Frankie Goes to Hollywood Two yeah. Tribes and how the Reagan figure was tussling with the Brezhnev figure. And I thought, I don't know if that is Brezhnev, and I had a sneaky little check, and that guy was supposed to be the USSR president, Konstantin Chernenko. Oh, so, well, uh, slap on the wrist for me. Slap for not... on the wrist. I just, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Just, to, I just didn't want to get those cards and letters from angry listeners, disappointed that we let them down. Well, if you would like another podcast to listen to, we have done episodes about many other US presidents. Check out the episodes on Kennedy, on JFK Blown Away, Richard Nixon Back Again, or even our recent episode about Watergate with the brilliant Kurt Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And please make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next episode, Tom. We're going to Palestine, Kate. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.